Welcome to the Allen & Overy podcast. My name is Wim de Jonge and I'm the senior partner of the firm. In this episode, we will discuss whether English governing law and jurisdiction clauses will still be an attractive option for commercial parties after Brexit. This is one of the key questions being raised by commercial parties in the context of Brexit, both at a policy level and when negotiating transactions on a day-to-day -day basis. With so much debate and speculation surrounding this topic, it is critically important to fully understand the practical implications of these issues so that you can focus on the points that really matter and make a properly informed decision as to the approach you want to take. I'm joined today by Sarah Garvey and Karen Birch, who are counsel in our litigation practice and are leading the advice we're giving to the clients in this area. Karen, let's start with governing law. When I talk to clients, the question they ask me is, does it still make sense to choose English law in my contracts? Or should I be considering other options? My own view is that in the majority of cases, it does continue to make sense. But before the UK joined the EU, commercial parties commonly opted for either English law or New York law in their contracts. After Brexit, my sense is they will continue to look to those options because there are deep-rooted technical and commercial reasons for doing so. What are you saying when you discuss these issues? I completely agree. Uh, in fact, I think so far as English governing law clauses are concerned, Brexit doesn't really change the analysis very much at all. Uh, and I say this because the reasons why parties have historically chosen English law in their contracts aren't really affected by Brexit. Uh, English law is, and I think will continue to be, relatively predictable, certain and business friendly. Uh, and that means that parties will continue to be held to their contractual bargains. So contractual disclaimers and non-reliance clauses will generally be enforced and, and so will contractual rights to accelerate debts and, and enforce security. And there will continue to be limited scope for terms to be implied or for principles of public policy or good faith to come into play. Uh, and I think English law will also continue to be flexible enough to deal with commercial and economic developments. And of course, that has always been a key of uh, attraction of English law in the past. A lot of clients have referred to European regulations in this area, Rome 1 and Rome 2. What is your view as to how these rules may impact the analysis? So Rome 1 and Rome 2 are the EU regulations which set out the rules on uh, which governing law is to be applied by member state courts. And they actually require member state courts to respect a choice of law, even if the law in question is not the law of a member state. So even after Brexit, member state courts will still be required to respect and give effect to English governing law clauses in commercial contracts. Brexit won't make a difference. And of course, the English courts will continue to give effect to English governing law clauses. So that isn't going to change either. In fact, the UK government has said that it will implement Rome 1 and Rome 2 into domestic law on Brexit. So the rules on governing law both in the UK and the EU should continue to be relatively closely aligned. No, thank you, Karen. Uh, Sarah, if I can turn to you, are there any areas where Brexit might make a difference? Well, there may be some impact in terms of how English law contracts are treated from a regulatory perspective. For example, in securitisation, certain contracts governed by English law might not fall within the scope of the ECB's collateral eligibility requirements for asset-backed securities after Brexit. That's because the relevant rules currently say that only contracts governed by the law of a member state are eligible. And of course, the UK won't be a member state. 
And there are one or two similar examples in other areas. But the key is these issues are on the edges. Outside the regulatory context, I don't think Brexit should have a significant impact. And this seems to be supported by what we've seen in practice. So although we've been asked lots of questions in this area, we certainly haven't seen a significant shift on the transactions that we've been advising on. Thanks, Sarah. If parties are considering changing the governing law of their contracts, what factors should they be thinking about? Well, I think first of all, it's important to keep in mind that this is not necessarily a straightforward exercise. And so before switching, parties should carry out a careful analysis of what they will gain and what they will lose by changing their approach. Essentially, they need to conduct a comparative law analysis. If they do decide to move away from English law, it's worth bearing in mind that they won't just be able to scrub out the reference to English law in the governing law clause and replace it with a reference to another law and assume the contract will continue to operate in the same way. So in practice, they'll need to work out how the meaning and effect of the provisions in the contract might differ if the governing law is changed and what amendments might be needed to make the contract work. So, for example, will an entire agreement clause have the same or indeed any meaning under a different system of law? Another consideration might be if there are any restrictions or prohibitions under the relevant system of law uh, that uh, you're changing to, does that require certain sections of the contract to be redrafted? Um, So my conclusion is it's likely to be a thorough exercise to avoid unintended consequences or unhappy surprises. Now let's turn to discuss English jurisdiction clauses. I know the position is a bit more complicated, but what are the issues that clients should be thinking about when they are negotiating a jurisdiction clause? Karen? I think in practice there are lots of different issues to consider. Uh, Enforcement risk is certainly a key factor, but well-advised parties often take a very nuanced approach to choosing their jurisdiction clauses. So they're often balancing enforcement risk against lots of other important factors. Um, They'll have to consider, for example, whether the courts in question have a reputation for the quality of their commercial decision-making, whether they're transparent, predictable, whether they uphold the rule of law. Uh, So they'll ask themselves questions such as whether the judges are experienced in resolving technical financial disputes and whether they're independent. Uh, And they'll also consider how good particular courts will be at determining disputes under the law chosen in the contract. So often parties will want to match their governing law and jurisdiction clauses so that disputes are resolved by judges who are qualified in the chosen law. So if English law is chosen, parties generally consider that it would make sense to select the English courts, and equally if French law is chosen, then the French courts would be an obvious choice. Procedural issues such as whether the dispute will be resolved quickly and cost-effectively can also come into play. Uh, as will questions about the extent of disclosure and and whether witness evidence is permitted. And I think the English courts have historically been a really popular choice alongside the New York courts because their track record on all of these issues has been strong. That's true indeed, uh, Sarah. How has the prospect of Brexit actually impacted that analysis? Well, most of the reasons why parties currently choose to litigate in the English courts, as outlined by Karen, they're unaffected by Brexit. But there is an area where Brexit might make a difference, and that's in relation to the approach of the EU27 courts 
um, the approach that they may take to respecting English jurisdiction clauses and then recognising and enforcing English judgments. So currently, member state courts must respect English jurisdiction clauses and halt proceedings brought in breach of those clauses. And also, they must enforce English judgments under common EU rules set out in the Recast Brussels regulation. So currently, if your contract has an English jurisdiction clause, um, under these EU rules, if a party um, brought proceedings in breach of that clause before the Greek courts, the Greek courts uh, can't take jurisdiction over the dispute and need to stay their proceedings. And the Greek courts would also um, enforce your English judgment. Um, there's also the Lugano Convention, which sets out an equivalent regime applying between EU member states, Switzerland, Iceland and Norway. So if the UK leaves the EU without an agreement, then this formal regime to give effect to English jurisdiction clauses and recognise and enforce English judgments, that will fall away, at least after a, any transitional period. Now, the UK government said officially that it wants to reach an agreement with the EU27, effectively to continue the recast regime in some form and also to sign up to the Lugano Convention. However, the EU's position is not yet clear on these issues. Okay, well, let's discuss the position as if there was no future deal with the EU27, which is the worst case. How much will this actually matter in practice, Karen? Let's say you're advising a party that would normally include an exclusive English jurisdiction clause in its contracts. What would you say? Well, where parties have agreed an exclusive English jurisdiction clause, it might not matter very much at all because parties should be able to rely on another convention, the Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements. Now, the Hague Convention is an international convention, so it has both EU and non-EU contracting states, uh, and it requires all contracting states to respect exclusive jurisdiction clauses in favour of other contracting states and to enforce related judgments. The Convention currently applies in all EU member states, including the UK, and also in Mexico and Singapore, and the UK government has confirmed that it's going to sign up to the Hague Convention in its own right after Brexit. It can do that unilaterally, so it can sign up even if there is a hard Brexit, as the agreement of the EU27 won't be required, and as soon as it does so, commercial parties will in most cases have a reciprocal regime that they can rely on. And we've actually seen some clients consider moving away from an asymmetric English jurisdiction clause to an exclusive English jurisdiction clause precisely to take advantage of this regime. Now, there are a couple of wrinkles to bear in mind. So first, we've seen questions raised about a potential timing issue. If the UK leaves the Hague Convention on Brexit and immediately rejoins, will that have an impact on jurisdiction clauses agreed before the UK rejoined? There's no clear answer to that question at the moment, but it's hoped that there may be some resolution as part of the withdrawal negotiations. Uh, there's also a technical argument that the recast rules might take priority over the Hague Convention in certain cases where all the parties are domiciled within the EU. Uh, but overall, I think for exclusive clauses, my own view is that the Hague Convention should provide parties with reassurance that their English jurisdiction clauses will continue to be respected and their English judgments will continue to be enforced in EU27 courts and indeed beyond. Sarah, what if we're in a hard Brexit scenario and the practice in a particular market is to include an asymmetric or non-exclusive English jurisdiction clause? So, for example, 
What if you have a standard LMA uh, asymmetric clause? Will that clause be respected? It's a little bit more complicated here because the quick fix of the Hague Convention and the analysis just outlined by Karen, that won't apply uh, because asymmetric clauses and non-exclusive clauses um, are not within scope of Hague. Now, I, before moving on, I should just say up front that my personal hunch is that the EU27 will agree to the UK rejoining the Lugano Convention. Um, and this will, in many ways, draw a line under this issue. But let's assume that doesn't happen. Asymmetric clauses, which are sometimes referred to as hybrid clauses, are an important area of the market. And if you have an English asymmetric jurisdiction clause and proceedings are brought uh, in a member state court in breach of such a clause by a party that is only permitted to sue in England, then my view is post-Brexit, member state courts are still likely to give effect to that clause in the same way as they do now, even if there's no formal European rule requiring them to do so. It's hard to see how the courts of sophisticated jurisdictions could refuse to respect party autonomy and not give effect to freely negotiated agreements made between commercial parties of equal bargaining power. Now, um, I should mention one potential wrinkle that seems to crop up quite a lot in commentary on this issue. Now, it's actually an issue that's very much at the edges in a specific regulatory context, um, and it may not even be relevant post-Brexit. Uh, but for completeness, I, I just wanted to mention um, that there's a provision of certain services into the EU from a third state um, Article 46 of MIFIR says that providers must offer to resolve disputes before a court or a tribunal of a member state. Now, it isn't clear that this rule will even be relevant after Brexit, but if it is, um, it isn't even clear what in practice this requirement to make such an offer entails. It's also worth clarifying uh, that the position on non-exclusive jurisdiction clauses is a, li is a little bit different. Um, by definition, if you have a non-exclusive clause, you have flexibility as to where you'll bring proceedings. And so uh, the practical implications of Brexit are much less with the non-exclusive clauses than, th than they might be with an asymmetric clause. No, agreed. And one final point on asymmetric clauses. Um, if um, a party is considering switching to another court or indeed to arbitration, then it's important to assess carefully what one gains, what one loses in making this switch. Um, so a bit like governing law, um, parties should always carry out a careful comparative analysis. And what about enforcement of judgments? Yes, yeah, so let's assume there are no European rules um, in place. Then in this scenario, you would look to the national law of the relevant member state. Now, we know that foreign judgments, for example, New York judgments, are enforced as a matter of national law in many member states, even where there's no reciprocal enforcement regime in place. So even in a hard Brexit scenario, and um, let's assume the Hague doesn't apply, we expect English judgments will still be enforced in many key EU jurisdictions after Brexit, and that includes France, Germany, Italy and Spain. Now, it's likely to be more costly and more time-consuming to do so. Um, and having said all of this, it is undoubtedly the case that having a simplified, uniform approach of widespread and 
automatic enforcement of member state judgments across the EU is a huge benefit to judgment creditors. Um, we anticipate enforcement in some jurisdictions may well be more problematic after Brexit if there's no new regime agreed. Um, but for commercial parties, what it means is that they'll have to consider these issues on a case-by-case -case basis um, and assess the national law of relevant jurisdictions. Um, I anticipate this potential risk may concern some parties more than others. Um, and of course, in practice, only a limited number of cases ever go to trial. And if they do, and there's a judgment, in my experience, insolvency petitions are often more likely than cross-border enforcement actions. Yeah, but of course, we're talking here about the worst case scenario. And all of these issues would uh, effectively fall away if a new reciprocal regime, for example, Lugano, uh, is agreed. Karen, how likely do you think that is? And will we um, end up in the worst case scenario? Well, I think the UK's position on this issue is, is clear and very helpful. As Sarah has already indicated, the UK government has confirmed that it wants to agree to a continued reciprocal civil judicial cooperation regime with the, the EU27 after Brexit on a basis that closely reflects the current framework. So in essence, the UK wants a continuation of the current regime. Uh, and the government has also confirmed that it would like to continue to participate in the Lugano Convention. Uh, but of course, it can't do either of those things without the agreement of the EU27, and in the case of Lugano, uh, Switzerland, Iceland and Norway as well. Uh, as Sarah mentioned, the EU's position on these issues isn't entirely clear, uh, but it does seem to me that agreeing to a continued reciprocal regime would be as beneficial to the EU27 as it would be to the UK. Uh, it's certainly widely recognised that a mutual regime on jurisdiction and judgments facilitates cross-border trade, uh, and that would benefit commercial parties on both sides of the channel. And leaving aside the impact for commercial parties just for a moment, uh, there would also be a, an impact on consumers and employees, both in the UK and the EU, if the protective provisions that are currently set out in the Recast and Lugano regimes uh, were to fall away. Uh, but of course, for any new arrangement, um, there is the thorny issue of the status of the Court of Justice and its judgments to be resolved. Uh, and I think there's just a real practical risk that the two sides will be unable to agree on some of the other more contentious issues relating to the future relationship, uh, such that any new agreement on civil justice just falls by the wayside. Yes, but even if the two sides do get into difficulties on wider withdrawal issues, and in negotiating a new recast. Why would the E27 object to the UK signing up to the Lugano Convention? It is a separate and freestanding convention that wouldn't have to be renegotiated. It probably would be a quick fix. Yeah, I entirely agree, Wim. I, I personally think there's a good chance that the EU27 will indicate soon uh, that they don't object to the UK rejoining the Lugano Convention. And this would be a very positive development. It would help promote legal certainty, um, as well as protect consumers and small businesses on both sides of the channel, and of course, in Iceland, Switzerland and Norway. And of course, if a withdrawal agreement is agreed over the next few months, then it looks as if there'll be a transitional period up until the end of 2020. Uh, and the recast rules will then continue to apply to legal proceedings commenced during that transitional period. Th thanks. Uh, so if I can wrap this up, it doesn't seem to me that there are any strong reasons to move away from a choice of English law and that English law will continue 
to be an attractive option for commercial parties in the years ahead. Having said that, if you are considering a switch, remember to road test how your choice will operate when plugged into your contractual provisions to avoid unintended consequences. And on jurisdiction, although the picture is more complicated, I expect parties increasingly to select exclusive English jurisdiction clauses to take advantage of the Hague Convention enforcement regime. Even without a new regime in place, enforcement of English judgments is likely to continue under national rules in many core jurisdictions, but it will just take longer. We remain optimistic that the UK won't be blocked from rejoining Lugano. And we will continue, obviously, to watch developments in Brussels with an interest and will report back with further updates and analysis soon. Mm-hmm.